It's the third time the San Francisco 49ers are back in Miami for a Super Bowl. Super Bowl 54, February 2nd, 2020, against the Kansas City Chiefs. In their inaugural visit to Miami for big game number 23 in 1989, the 49ers are the first football team, along with the Cincinnati Bengals, ever to play a Super Bowl in the then two-year-old Joe Robbie Stadium. The Miami Gardens, home of the Dolphins, is now called the Hard Rock Stadium, where Super Bowl 54 is once again the stomping grounds. Super Bowl 23 goes down in history for an amazing 49ers comeback and the story of quarterback Joe Montana's huddle moment late in the fourth quarter. It's a Super 23 Miami legend. The, hey, isn't that John Candy story? There's three minutes and 10 seconds left in the game. Cincinnati's leading 16 to 13. After a Bengals field goal with under four minutes left, the 49ers have the football on their own eight yard line. The team is in a huddle. At one of the most crucial moments of the game, if not the most crucial, Montana says to teammate Harris Barton as they're in the huddle, Montana points to someone in the stands. He says, hey, isn't that John Candy? Yup, it sure was Uncle Buck in Miami watching the game. Joe Cool calms the nerves of his players with the spotting of the comedian, and the team goes on to score a comeback, a 20-16 victory for the 49ers. I've thought about this a few times. Would Joe have spotted John Candy in the stands if Super Bowl had been moved at the last minute to Tampa? Tampa? So let's rewind a week, and I'll tell you why Super Bowl 23 almost wasn't Miami's, why we may not have witnessed that comeback or been the legendary keepers of the John Candy story. What happened the Monday before the big ultimate game that had a city on edge, that had Miami's powers that be afraid for the safety of out-of-town visitors coming to their fair city? Super Bowl 23 in Miami carries with it an off-the-field news story, that while the big Super Bowl parties were getting underway, a Miami neighborhood was under siege. Local 10 and Local10.com present the Florida Files. I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is Reelin' in the Years, Miami Super Bowls, 1989, Into the Fire. set aside to honor Martin Luther King Jr. January 16, 1989, a week before Super Bowl 23, day one of Super Bowl week. A little more than 10 miles south of Joe Robbie Stadium is Overtown, a predominantly black Miami neighborhood. At 6 p.m., a Miami police officer of Hispanic descent fatally shoots a black motorist. And pandemonium breaks out. Eyewitness News 10 goes from stories about Super Bowl preps and Miami showing its best face to the world to violence in the streets. 
Good evening, a night of violence scars Miami in Super Bowl week. We'll have team coverage from the streets of Overtown to City Hall. I'm Ann Bishop, live at NFL headquarters. I'm going to tell you how the Overtown disturbance is having an effect on the Super Game and the Super fans. It all started last night about this time. A man was shot by police in Overtown and a violent reaction followed. There is renewed violence tonight as the sun sets over Miami. A routine Monday evening explodes with shots from a police officer's gun. The Miami Police Department says the uprising was sparked around 6 when two of its men chased some suspects on a motorcycle. The chase passed a third officer, William Lozano, who was stopped by the side of the road. Lozano reportedly opened fire and the motorcycle slammed head on into an oncoming car. In a matter of minutes, 23-year-old Clement Lloyd was dead. His passenger, Alan Blanchard, died today. A neighborhood was thrown into chaos. Terry Merriman, Channel 10 Eyewitness News. Within an hour, war raged. Teams of riot police were called in. Cars were torched, windows smashed and looted. Store shelves were ripped bare. Eyewitness News 10's Terry Merriman reports. Miami Mayor Xavier Suarez showed up at 7.30 doing his best to calm the crowds, promising them he was ordering a full investigation into the shooting. 31 years later, Suarez, the first Cuban-born mayor of Miami, chokes up recalling that week. We're talking in his office in downtown Miami, where he's serving as a Miami-Dade County Commissioner. His son, Francis Suarez, is now Miami's mayor. 31 years after his dad was mayor, when Super Bowl 23 rolled into town, now it's Francis's town and his Super Bowl 54. Xavier Suarez had more than the Super Bowl responsibilities on his shoulders that week. He didn't expect it. There had been another race riot nine years before in the same area, similar circumstances. On this Martin Luther King Day, Suarez was out on a mayor's visit to a Miami baseball stadium that was sheltering refugees from Nicaragua and Miami's homeless. Take me through when, what happened. Did someone call you and tell you, or how, how did it all? Yes, I was actually at uh, what used to be Bobby Maduro Stadium. Uh, I was doing a, uh, an interview because we were trying to raise money for the refugees that were there. We had put Nicaraguan refugees and home, homeless people in that facility, separated only by some curtains or whatever. Uh, what was the purpose so of that? What was the purpose of that? So they weren't on the street? Yeah. We had at one point 125 Nicaraguans living in one house in uh, Southwest 12th Avenue. So when we moved them over there, at the uh, suggestion of the manager, um, then we said, I don't want homeless people, you know, to think that we're taking care of refugees, but not them. So we said, well, don't, if we're going to open a facility, we're going to feed people, and we're going to give them a roof, why don't we do the same thing with homeless? So, so we did that when the Super Bowl was coming? <coughs> I mean, that seems to I think like it was coincidental, but okay. I may not be. Seems to me like I don't want to be a revisionist here. Like I don't remember it having to do with the Super Bowl. I think it, it was, uh, it was um, the, cat, the, the catalyst was the, the legality of 125 people living in a house. 
so I was there and I was filming an ad and I was with my wife, we were filming together and I got a call that said we had a shooting in, in uh, Overtown. Uh, so I left her there and I went with an officer who drove me. The officer <laughs> didn't stay with me, so I ended up by myself. And uh, my idea that night was to spend the night in Overtown with uh, one of the families, just to sort of be there, you know. And um, ultimately, that didn't work out for reasons that I have never said publicly. But uh, Do you want to say it publicly now? It's all these years later. <laughs> Let me think about it. to mention there's a tarnish once again on Miami just nine years after working so hard to restore its image. After the 1980 McDuffie riots, an all-white jury in Tampa acquitted Dade County police officers in the beating death of black insurance man Arthur McDuffie. Three days in May, 18 dead, 400 injured, $100 million worth of property damage in that riot in Overtown in Liberty City. This was Miami's time to show the world that things were so much better. News of the 1980 riots spread for sure, but in 1989, the eyes of the world were already on Miami for the ultimate game. News crews from everywhere already in place. Now, instead of a sports story, they have a news story, and a big one at that. And tonight's version of what they're saying about Super Week, unfortunately, we know all too well what the national focus has been since last night's violence in Overtown. Reporters here from across the country came to cover a sporting event, but instead are covering violence in the streets. Here's Deborah Dixon for WKRC in Cincinnati. In a final attempt to stop the disturbance, police moved to the streets of Overtown with their riot gear. The show of force seems to work for the moment. But with Miami's history of racial tension and riots, the potential for violence in poverty-stricken Overtown still seems close to the surface. Eyewitness News 10 anchor Dwight Lauderdale. The violence in our community is being seen through the magnifying glass of the national media in town to cover the Super Bowl. With the latest on that, let's go back live to Ann Bishop at NFL headquarters in the Miami Convention Center. Annie? Well, Dwight, uh, the stories they're filing are certainly a different thing than what you're hearing around the uh, hallways here at the Miami Convention Center. Everybody seems very happy. The parties are now getting underway. You can tell a big difference between yesterday and today because there are more people here. They're more excited. They are getting into the hype of the Super Bowl. So it is not the big issue locally that we're concerned about, but of course they have filed their stories and given a very bad uh, image or look of us to the rest of the world. But I'm sure that this too will pass and this too will end. But the visiting fans and the media are reacting to the incidents here. And for more on that, we go to Eyewitness News reporter Patty Oates. It was the lead on story on all three major January networks. 17. There were riots in Miami last night in the Overtown section of the city. Newspaper headlines blared it across the country. Violence rattles Miami. But to the visitors partying in South Florida, many here for the Super Bowl, the streets of Overtown might as well be a world away. I'm here for the Super Bowl to have fun. I wasn't even near there. I'm not going to be near there. doesn't bother me a bit. I'm here to watch 49ers. Got no worries. Don't know where the place is. another sports event in town. Although not as big as the Super Bowl, there are concerns. It's at the Miami Arena, smack dab in the middle of Overtown. 
Eyewitness News Sports Director Cambrell Marshall standing by at the arena. Cam? Thank you, Ann. The Miami Heat will be playing at 7.30 against the Phoenix Suns. The Heat Managing General Partner, Lou Chaffel. <laughs> Lou, you've been answering a lot of questions today, but among them about the game going on, you really haven't had any concerns, and if you had any concerns, you made it clear to me earlier that you wouldn't put this game on if you had any thoughts about anybody's safety. I feel that way. I, uh, my, I invited my wife to come, and she's coming, and friends are coming, and if it was uh, if it was unsafe i wouldn't even play the game and that's my feeling and that's after speaking to the city manager and having full discussions with people who know more than we do that this part of uh, this part of town is is fine i guess at this point in time i'm sure that people have uh, maybe considered uh, whether or not you have second guessed the decision to build it here because uh, of the past history of the overtown area although you made it clear that the activity that happened last night is uh, a little bit removed from this area uh, let, let me state one thing i i had nothing to do with where the arena was being built. I, we weren't a party to that decision. But I do believe it's in the right place. I don't think there's any question. If you take our first 18 games, we had, we had 15 sellouts. Uh, you look at the concerts that are going on here. People are coming. They feel good about being here. They love the building. They love the team. So I think the people have made the decision that this is the right place to have an arena. Um, I showed up with the city manager, and we were sitting in the front row. We had got a lot of media attention, and we were putting a, a favorable uh, you know, face on everything that had taken place. Suarez tells me he didn't sleep for he doesn't know how many days, from the moment he arrived on that shooting scene and in the days following. The city of Miami at the time was 400,000 people, and I knew all the neighborhoods uh, very well. Uh, and so, to me, it's 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 part of me as mayor to be on top of things. My my uh, thing is to go right to the scene. I don't use intermediaries. I don't use spokespersons. In a report about the Overtown riots, the New York Times writes. Mayor Xavier Suarez, who arrived soon after, lifted the sheet so the victim's mother and sister could see the body. The mayor would later apologize for that action, saying it may have helped fuel the riot that followed. Suarez doesn't speak to me of that incident, but he does reveal another story. I did something that I haven't talked about, which is I insisted the night of the shooting in going to the morgue and seeing the body. And one of the co my colleagues on the commission, uh, Commissioner Plummer, who's kind of known as the police commissioner, he was always kind of patrolling around with his automobile. Uh, and uh, he said, no, don't do that. Don't get involved. Don't, you know, you could become a witness. So I am a witness. I am the mayor of the city. I, I stand in the place of the people who want to know what happened. And I, I want to see the body. So I went to them and I asked the county attorney or somebody if this was kosher and they said, sure. And so I went and um, I had him remove the cloth and I confirmed that the bullet went in the front. So I didn't start telling the whole world about it, but if I met with the family privately, which I did that the very same day, um, you know, I would tell him what I saw and I'd ask him to keep it private because there's all kinds of lawsuits, all kinds of criminal investigations and all of that. But as mayor of the city, even if it got me into some hot water with some folks, 
I wanted to have as much evidence as possible of what took place and to what extent was it, uh, you know, uh, something that, that could have been avoided. And I'm not going to even now say whether it could have been avoided because all of that has been tried, criminal court, civil court. I think ultimately we had to pay everybody, you know, uh, which is what happens in the civil law. But um, I know that I was able to talk to family members and to community leaders and say, from what I have seen, uh, the version uh, that the police officer has given is the correct one. Now, it doesn't mean that that was within the norms or et cetera, et cetera. Suarez chokes up when he tells me there was a moment where he actually feared he might lose his life during those chaotic days in 1989, when he had escaped a car that was set on fire. It's that story that earlier in our interview, he wasn't sure he wanted to talk about publicly. It's a story, he says, he didn't want to tell his wife then. Okay, so you've had time to think since you haven't told that story. I've given you some time to think about it, and then I'm going to let you go. What was the story you said you've never spoken about before? Um, Let's just say that the vehicle that I ultimately left in, uh, we made it, but the vehicle didn't. (laughs) Because uh, people, um, again, it, it got dark, and they didn't know that I was that I was in the car. We went up to 20th Street, and I said, okay, let's take a right, but up to 20th Street, I have four guys, just neighborhood kids, that were in the hood of the car. They wouldn't let anybody. They wouldn't let anybody touch me, you know? And then, we turned, they got off the hood of the car. I said, oh, we're okay, thank you much. And then we turned on 20th Street and the next intersection was not so pleasant. But we got out and uh, again, no injuries to anybody. Uh, I didn't tell my wife about it. I think she found out about it later. So you were a little afraid for your life at that point? A little bit. Oh yeah. And before that, too, but I won't talk about that either. So you got to be strong when you're the mayor. You can't show all that. Correct. And you can't get into histrionics, you know. I mean, I can do it now, thinking back, because I, I think of the beauty of having those kids protecting me, but not in a bad sense, you know. I, mm-hmm. People do crazy things when the circumstances are... Um, such that they feel that this is the only way that they can react. Later that week uh, in a helicopter, um, we actually experienced uh, a a military rifle that took a shot at us. And the reason that I knew that it was that it it had tracers. So you saw the tracers and the, um, the pilot said I had my earphones and he said okay we got to climb up 
those were tracer bullets, uh, which only military rifles have. You know, they, they show the person where the bullet is going. And then he said, sit on your chicken plates. I did not know what that meant. I, I thought they had ordered, you know, chicken, whatever, whatever. And, of course, what it meant is get your bulletproof vest and sit on it so that if the bullets come up, they won't penetrate. me he played the song Ave Maria over and over and over again throughout the ordeal. There was a lot of, there was a lot of prayer involved. I played for myself during that time uh, the uh, Schubert's uh, Ave Maria. I had just a take going. It was just like a, it was just on a loop. Yes. Why was that? And it's soothing to me and it, it sort of reminds me that uh, we're not alone, alone in all of this. You know. As the days passed, Suarez says, things began to get brighter in Miami, just in time for the Super Bowl. The community came together. All the wounds were healed. We had had no further incidents. You know, by Sunday, the city was festive. And by the time of that kickoff, the storm had passed. It's almost a year after the fans and media are gone, 11 months. Police officer William Lozano is in a courtroom after days of deliberations. He's waiting for the verdict, waiting for his fate. To judge his actions, six people, men and women, white, black, and Latin, young and old. They spent eight hours to decide Lozano didn't have to fire his gun didn't have to kill Clement Lloyd and Alan Blanchard. All right, Madam Clerk, publish the verdict, please. We, the jury at Miami-Dade County, Florida, this seventh day of December, A.D., 1989, find the defendant, William Lozano, as to manslaughter, as charged in count one of the information, guilty with a firearm, so say we all, signed by Foreman Ezra Simmons. We, the jury at Miami-Dade County, Florida, this 7th day of December, A.D., 1989, find the defendant, William Lozano, as to manslaughter, as charged in count two of the information, guilty, without a firearm, so say we all, signed by Foreman Ezra Simmons. William Lozano sat without emotion through it all, later saying he never expected this. One of his defense attorneys said cops weren't safe on the streets. I extend my sympathies to all police officers because as a result of this verdict, I think that each and every one of them is at risk. Prosecutors disagreed. The justice system isn't perfect, but it does work. And it, it takes time and it's frustrating, but um, obviously in this case, uh, this case proves that it does work. But the jurors aren't saying how it worked, what they believed, what they didn't, only that it was hard. Are you glad you did it? Yes, but it was very difficult. In Miami, Connie Hicks, Channel 10, Eyewitness News on the Night Beat. 
Lozano was sentenced to seven years in prison, but was allowed to remain free on bond pending an appeal. In June 1991, an appeals court reversed his conviction, saying that no Miami jury could ever be fair in considering the case. A retrial took place in 1993 in Orlando, where six jurors agreed that the Miami officer was not guilty in the shooting and killing of Clement Lloyd and the death of his passenger, Alan Blanchard. Find more Florida Files, Miami Super Bowl reeling in the years on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Radio Public, and anywhere your favorite podcasts can be found. Are you a fan of the Florida Files? Tell us what you love about the series on Apple Podcasts and join other fans in leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.